stories on and off the field, told by the biggest names in the game. This is the Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. All guests on The Sporting Life appear via the Shelf and Oil Performance Line. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Coming up later in the show, we'll be joined by the one and the only couch slouch, Norman Chad. But first, week one of the 2020 NFL season wasn't like anything we previously witnessed. The games played against the backdrop of the pandemic, all but two of them in stadiums devoid of fans. At the same time, these would be the first NFL games played since the killing of George Floyd, which sparked the social justice movement that has swept over the country. Four years after Colin Kaepernick took a knee during the playing of the national anthem to protest police brutality and systemic racism, what would it be like now with so many more athletes, so many more players in the NFL engaged and vocal in the movement? For more, we're joined by ESPN senior writer Howard Bryant. Howard, thank you for being with us. Hey, Jeremy. How are you doing? I'm good, sir. We talked about this on TV already, but now we have a little more breathing room on radio uh, to elaborate. Um, it's you know five days after the first game of the season, a couple of days after the big slate of games. How did you process everything that we saw in this week one, this historic week one? Well, I think the first thing was we know that right now... <laughs> In the time that we live in, we're in a battle for images and optics and appearances. I was really struck by the fact that the Miami Dolphins had come out with their statement about not wanting to be part of those optics and not wanting to be part of what they considered to be performative. And I thought that this was very interesting because the NFL, even if you just take everything away, if we can for a second, let's just remove the NFL from everything else. Let's just take football away from the NBA, from tennis, from all the rest of it. They are a very specific industry in and of itself. They are really the center of what we're talking about for a few reasons. This is all their fault in a lot of ways. They, they created this antipathy between protest and the players. Why? Because of their harsh treatment of Colin Kaepernick. I've always said that Colin Kaepernick, in a lot of ways, is a created figure. And when I say created, I mean, he was created because of the reaction. And not just the reaction, right, Howard, but Colin Kaepernick did not make a point of telling the world that he had gone back into the locker room. Well, it's the, it's the reaction to him by his industry. And I've always wondered, as we've talked about this for four years now, what would have happened if they had just left him alone? <laughs> right? What, you know, we talk about this. I, I, I always think about this. What would have happened if the NFL and the 49ers had just let him stay in the corner for his 60 seconds of the national anthem? It was the reaction that created the outrage. It was the reaction that made this an issue. And so now when you think about it, four years- it excuse me, Howard, if I don't, I'm sorry to interrupt, but if I don't really, really remember, it's hard now. It's been four years, as you say, the, the details, my recollection was at the beginning, the NFL said, unlike the NBA, for instance, with Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, he could do whatever he wants during the national anthem, which is when, um, you know, he took the knee and, and um, uh, on the advice of Nate Boyer. Yes. But at some point that changed. Yes, it changed during the season, obviously. 
and it really kicked into high gear when he became a free agent, when nobody touched him. Right. So it, right. that's the shot across the bow. That's the shot to all the other players about here's how this industry feels. Here's how this industry is going to react to protest. Here's how this industry is going to deal with this issue going forward. It was the most, as we talked about the other day, the NFL is the least ambiguous industry in America when it came to protest. So now here we are four years later or three years later since Kaepernick, you know, went unsigned in the 2017 season. And now you have the NFL having to re-navigate this because the world has changed. And so it was very interesting to me to see how they were going to navigate this because you know, and I know their politics haven't changed. They're in much more of a different situation than some of the other sports because they were so obdurate against protest in the first place. So they have created a expectation on the part of their fans to be harsh against protest. They've had owners come forward and essentially say, whether it was Steve Ross or whether it was John Mara or whether it was Steve Viscotti, that they did not feel that there was a place for protest in the sport. They came out and created more rules and penalties against protest. So they're the ones more than any other sport that were really in a sort of box of how do we, how do we readjust to the shifting shape of the world right now? And how do I think they did? I, I, I think that I think they are trying very hard to escape with marginally consistent optics with the rest of the world, but their optics aren't consistent because they were so harsh. So you have Eric Reed come out calling calling them diabolical for adding Colin Kaepernick to their social justice campaign, and it looks very very strange when you see players taking a knee now, and and, and you have some of the other teams like the Dolphins calling out the performative nature of it. So it's going to be really interesting to see what the stamina level is for the NFL, which is very different than the other sports. We're speaking with ESPN senior writer Howard Bryant, um, who, of course, has been covering um, the Colin Kaepernick story for the last four years and has written so, so well and for so long about social justice issues in sports in general. And, and one of the things I was thinking about, Howard, um, over the course of that first NFL weekend is the dynamic inside the stadiums in the absence of fans. We saw what happened last Thursday night at Arrowhead where there were boos um, after the Texans, I guess, had stayed inside uh, for the anthems and then came out and locked arms with the Chiefs. There were boos. There was only one other stadium in which fans were allowed last weekend. That was in Jacksonville. Without fans to react and to amplify or unamplify, whatever it may be. How does that affect the way these protests, these gestures of solidarity are conceived and then received? I think it, it creates distortion because we just don't know. That was the question with the NBA as well, which was would the Milwaukee Bucks and Orlando Magic really have not come out of the, out of the tunnel if there were 20,000 fans waiting for them expecting a basketball game. So I think that these elements just make for an even stranger year. It just, we don't know those answers, but I think what it does do in the absence with the, in the absence of fans is it allows people to create, it allows the league to create 
a new dynamic. It allows the players to sort of make a few test balloons of their own in terms of deciding how do we want, you know, what is this new foundation going to look like? And I think that's what you're really watching right now is that you've got an entirely new foundation that's being laid in the wake of a very hostile one. You know, I mean, and let's not forget that this is not just the sports world. This is everybody. This is the entire culture. When you're watching television and you watch a, a Jersey Mike's, you know, sub commercial, as I was watching the tennis this weekend, um, you, you know, they mentioned that they're, you know, giving money to underprivileged kids. And, and, you know, all of this is in the wake of George Floyd, all of this, the country is shifting. And as the country shifts, the sports have to shift as well. And you're going in a totally different direction. As we talked about on the air, I think we, we, spent, we spent the last 20 years with the politics of patriotism, and now we're going to spend however, whatever the stamina level is, we're going to find out what the stamina level is for the politics of policing. Because the players don't seem like they are going to back away from this. We're speaking with ESPN senior writer Howard Bryant. Uh, we'll have more from Howard in our next segment. Welcome back to The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. It's time for Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. Welcome back to The Sporting Life. Again, we're speaking with ESPN senior writer Howard Bryant in the wake of the first week of the NFL season, which you know at this point in our culture has kind of become a national holiday unto itself, but uh, against a very different backdrop this year. Um, of course, the social justice movement that we've witnessed for the last nearly four months since the killing of George Floyd, the pandemic, which took hold just a few weeks after the playing of the last Super Bowl. We're talking about mostly empty stadiums. We're talking about um, gestures of protest from players in a way in a way that we haven't seen previously, certainly even more so than than four years ago when Colin Kaepernick uh, started the movement in pro sports, you could say, um, with his protest during the anthem. And we are, again, as I said, joined by Howard Bryant of ESPN. H- Howard, before I ask you some questions about tennis, which I know you were following the U.S. Open finals very closely as well, and it was an interesting weekend in tennis, what do you think the what do you think the impact is of the player protests? Hey, you know, we hear so often now in our society that everything is baked in. You know, we're we're so polarized, we're so divided. You know, or or it's you know, there's forty percent on one side, forty percent on the other side, and there's twenty percent kind of up for grabs. Well, what do you think the player protests do in terms of moving the needle in the direction of their cause? Well, I think that I think it's valuable because I think that and I don't think it's the players first. I think the players are helping. Let's not forget my opinion on this, Jeremy. I, I don't know if we've talked about this or not, but my opinion on this is that the players and the United States as a, you know, as a corporate entity, they were reacting to the protests. So what we're really seeing is we're seeing the reaction to the reaction to Minneapolis. And I think once you saw those images of George Floyd being killed, once you saw those images of people in the street in New York, in D.C., in Minneapolis, I think everybody, I think this was the enough is enough moment. I think it was the, the moment no different from, say, Emmett Till, um, 
1955 that really spurred the civil rights movement. I think it's no different than when the when those four little girls were killed September 15th, 1963, and that spurred civil rights legislation. Exactly right. And so, and even from a, from a more trivial standpoint, I think it's no different than Barry Bonds hitting 73 home runs. And it made baseball go, okay, enough is enough. We've got a drug problem. When they had to finally admit we have a drug problem. And I think that this moment made people probably because of the pandemic, everybody was in the house, everybody was watching, everybody was cooped up, everybody was reaching a point. And I think that when you see George Floyd getting killed and you see the reaction, I think that was the enough is enough moment. And I think that the corporations in the country, our company, a lot of companies around the country suddenly recognized that this was something we had to deal with at some level. And I think the players followed. And I think when that happens, to get to a long-winded way of answering your question, I, I think when that happens, you create new baselines in the society. And I think what the players have done is they've begun to create sort of a new baseline. And it's going to be rough right now, but over time, I think you'll see something different. You know, are you going to see end racism in every single sport? I don't know how long that's going to last, but maybe you see it in soccer all the time. Those, those signs went up and they've remained when you're watching the champions league and the premier league, et cetera. I, I think that, are, are the players going to threaten wildcat strikes and boycotts whenever somebody gets killed? I don't think so, but I think that the players have certainly created a new deal with the public and with their, and, and with the people who own sports teams that that possibility is there, which brings everything back to labor, that the players are exercising a level of power. And I think there's value in that as well, because the players are really saying, especially Naomi Osaka, um, at the Western and Southern before the U.S. Open, where she phrased it very, very cleverly, where she said, I don't think it's important for you to watch me play tennis right now. She didn't say, I don't think it's important that I play tennis right now. She was saying, I'm not going to contribute to your distraction. And so that changes the deal. That changes the deal um, significantly because people love to treat athletes as, well, you know, you're here to entertain me and you have no say in any of this. Well, the players are proving that they do have a say. The question is also going to be what is going to be the stamina level for the public? What, how, how is the public going to react? And I think what the players are doing is they're daring the public to not come. They're going to say, okay, are you really willing to not watch sports again because we had a problem with George Floyd being murdered by police? And I think that what you're going to see over time is eventually we'll get used to a new template, but a new template is definitely coming. Speaking with the ESPN senior writer, Howard Bryant. And Howard, um, uh, let me... And by the way, Jeremy, can I throw one last thing in here? Yes, of course. I think it's also important. I think it's also important to remember something else. And that is, I think the players are citizens. I don't think they're radicals. I don't think the, I don't think this is going to be a dynamic where the players don't want to play. I think they do want to play. And I think that they are, I, I think that we've seen that in college sports as well. Exactly. You know, players saying we want, we want to play, but we also want to have more That's say. Right. And so I think that what we have to get used to, and it's important because obviously generationally, you know it and I know it, but maybe a lot of your listeners don't know it. You know, there was a time when 
even the players in baseball believed that free agency was going to destroy the sport. And yet the world came up, the, you know, the sun came up the next day and the business was actually even more profitable and the game became more exciting and we all kept going forward. So we're in a massive period of transition right now, but I thought it was, I thought it was really significant that the players in the NBA went to Barack Obama and of course he suggested that they go back to work. So it wasn't a radical movement. It was a moderate movement. They took one day and now they say things that they want to be heard, but they're not stopping traffic. They're not stopping the game. They're not boycotting the actual sport. It's not like they're walking off the court in the second, you know, in the second quarter. They are citizens and they want to perform, but they also want to be heard. And so I, I feel this has gone much more smoothly than it could have been. I mean, imagine if they had walked out and said, you know what, we're all opting out right now. Um, that would have changed much, much more. And Howard, I had planned um, to talk to you about uh, tennis a little bit. Naomi Osaka, of course, Dominic Team, um, but but we're running short on time. We could we could talk tennis again soon because the French Open is right around the corner, which seems like a strange thing to say in September. But, <laughs> exactly. but before I I do let you go, you're a Boston guy. You're an NFL guy. You've covered the league for a very long time. What was it like? Um, being in uh, in the Commonwealth and, and watching uh, the events transpire as they did with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers this past weekend? I was really stunned by the number of people who would send out on social media, Tom who? It's like, no, be better than that, New England. I think, you know, it's like... <laughs> Come on, that's predictable, it though. Was, it was predictable. You're not here anymore, but I... I think that there's a huge number of people that are still rooting for Tom Brady and deep down they want to see the, the, I want to, I think they want to see the Buccaneers succeed. I think, I think it's going to be really difficult for anybody for the last 20 years, unless you weren't bleeding uh, Patriots colors to see age take over Tom Brady and to see him and to see him fail. But I also think there's a bit of vindication on the part of a lot of people here who realized that you can't play forever. And you can see that, you know, Brady was slipping and there's a, there's a little bit of that, well, it was time attitude as well. Certainly uh, an interesting dynamic, no doubt about it, with Cam, Cam in Boston and Tom in Tampa. Mr. Bryant, it's always a pleasure and uh, we always appreciate your insights. Thanks for coming on the show. No, thank you so much, Jeremy. Yep, call any time. Howard Bryant. Straight Talk Wireless. No commitment, no compromise. You're listening to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp on ESPN Radio. More coming up next. Welcome back to The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Brought to you by Shell V Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Welcome back to The Sporting Life. Uh, we had a lot of plans for the upcoming segments. Most of them fell through. We had to go to plan B. We probably should have waited to formulate another plan A, but instead we went to plan B, which means welcoming back to the show one of our most frequent guests, Norman Chad. Norman, thank you for joining us. First of all, this would be plan Y, so you're just trying to be kind. <laughs> Second of all, I'm one of our frequent guests. You have a weekly show with two or three guests. I appear bi-annually. So you do the math. Go ahead. 
That's 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 true. I the math uh, biannual. Does that mean every once every two years or once every six months? I semi-annual. Remember semi-annual sale? You know Macy's is that's every six yeah, months. So biannual right. is every two years. Two years means nothing. Isn't that to a you. biennial? See, biannual. It sounds like I know you're right, but it sounds like every six months. It sounds like okay. it should also mean semi-annual. I, I understand. When I know you you're very, a precisionist. Small, I mean, you were like five or six years old. This country celebrated its bicentennial. You're right. I was six so, years old. According to you, that meant that we were that was our 50 year anniversary as a nation, or something like that. That's a very good. It point. was 200 years. Tell me, and we're speaking with Norman Chad, the couch slouch, poker legend. Sports, uh, television, legend. Is that a, I think that's a fair way of describing you. The sesquicentennial is 150. Did you just say a word that I heard you say? What did you just say? Sesquicentennial is 150. It's one of my favorite words. Seriously, if, if we were on a desert island together, the over-under for survival for both of us would be two and a half days. There would be a justifiable homicide if I killed you. <laughs> I think we'd get along. We'd get along so well. That's just not true. You know, I know we, you know, we play this kind of bickering couple on the radio, but in, in, in truth, we really get along quite well. But I'm trying to look up this word. I'm going through my photos on my iPhone. There's a word because I was on Block Island. Block recently. Island. Block Island. Yeah, it's off the coast of Rhode Island. Okay. It's like 10 yeah. miles from Rhode Island in Connecticut. It's, um, really cool place and i was exploring the island there's a rock settler's rock and it was dedicated in 1961 to celebrate the tercentennial that's what the rock says shouldn't it be tricentennial wouldn't you say tricentennial they say tercentennial off the top of my head i would think it's tricentennial but that's a term i've never thought of before so you're claiming they're saying it's the what centennial t-e-r centennial tercentennial Never heard that this term is, before. This is great radio. Um, I got to ask you, you know, last time we spoke, you were having a hard time, as many have, dealing with the pandemic, some personal losses in your life. And now I'm seeing, as I was Googling you, a whole big story about you turning a bad beat into something upbeat with the Uka Luka Challenge. Can you tell us about your journey over the last several months? Okay, the bad beat into something upbeat. Upbeat, by the way, is just a bad writer's interpretation of my life. Wow. I mean, that's not a nice thing to say about somebody who wrote a very flattering piece about you and, and laudatory. Um, but no, I, I understand. He's very he's, he's, His name is Jesse Foley. He's a very talented individual. Writing is not his, his number one strength. So, yes. Uh, and I would never say that about you. I mean, you have so many number one strengths. They would be what we call co-number ones or maybe cur-number ones. Oh, uh, I'm flattered. So, anyway. Deeply flattered. Uh, yes. And uh-huh. when, when we last spoke or when I last had contact with you, uh, when I was clinging to a lifeboat and you told me you'd get to me when you can, uh, that was pre-COVID for me. I I think I think I. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Continue. I'm just. I'm just. Uh, I'm sorry. I was just trying to answer your question. I didn't. I didn't mean. I, I understand. Sometimes your question has multiple parts, so you were speaking again. I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> no, what did you have to say? I'm not. I'm merely reacting to what you said, Norman. Please proceed. Okay. 
you know, actually, when uh, Donald Trump decided to talk to Bob Woodward, uh, that was the third person who had asked him for 19 conversations. The first two were you and Charlie Rose. And to his credit, Donald Trump said, no, I won't have enough time to talk if Jeremy Schapp or Charlie Rose were asking me questions. So he went with Woodward, okay. who was much more concise with his questions. Yes. Now, can I continue? Please, I've been begging you to continue to proceed. So, yeah, I, I know we're going to run out of time. So, yes, the, the bad beat to an upbeat was the fact that through a, a series of, of very bad things that had happened, and uh, including loss of income, loss of job, uh, loss of wife in terms of we've been separated for six or seven months because of the pandemic, loss of my dog who passed away, I decided to, uh, for mental health purposes, to try to pick up my spirits, I do suffer from depression, that from my home where I was by myself, uh, that I would start doing uh, something on Twitter. Twitter is the most toxic, uh, negative. You hate Twitter. Hateful. I hate Twitter. Yes, you know we hate, and I, and I know that in, in, in your heart of hearts, you're certainly not fond of Twitter either. No, not and, at all. Uh, we know what Twitter can be. Yeah. And I have to deal actually in poker Twitter more than real life Twitter, which is another level of bad Twitter. It's not as bad as the, the worst Twitter out there, but since I deal mostly in poker Twitter, I decide instead of the toxic and hateful, let me put out something positive there and let's use Twitter for positive purposes. And I started to do a little dance in my home that I taped every day called the Ooka And with the dance, I tried to put out a positive message that, uh, you know, in the short life we lead, we shouldn't make others' lives so miserable. We should get along better. We shouldn't judge people based on race, religion, or ethnic background, and that was generally the, the whole thing. The ukuluka dance, uh, Jeremy, is like a 30-second little stupid dance where I just, you know, I can't sing and I can't dance, but I literally said, lean to the left, lean to the right, glance at the heavens, and dance all night. It's time to ukuluka. That was the whole song. So I put that out I there. I thought it was the thing from uh, Willy Wonka. Me. Yeah, by the way, I never saw Willy Wonka, and so some people told me it sounded like the I had to look it up. Oompa like the Loompa. Oompa Loompa. Oompa Loompa. Oompa Loompa. Yeah, that's the Willy Wonka. It was, it was not Luka Luka. It was something similar. Oompa Loompa. Do you know what it is? Oompa, I just Oompa. said it. Oompa Loompa. Okay. And then I looked that up, and I didn't mean to do that. And plus, that's a whole different thing. Plus, other people told me it reminded me of something that I might have subconsciously be doing, because I did this in college when I was drunk. It was... Uh, Put your left foot out, put your right foot out, put your left foot out. you know that one? Yeah, uh, the hinky dinky is something like that. The, the, not hinky dinky, but it's close to that. Who, but that's the one I might have been thinking of social, social, hokey uh, pokey, hokey so pokey. I started doing it daily. Hokey pokey. I did it daily for 90. Our producer just waited. The hokey pokey, not the, not the hinky dinky. The hokey pokey. That's the one I might have been channeling. So I did it daily for 90 odd days. Some people, you know, some people loved it. A lot of people hated it. They told me it was a career ender. Oh, that's going to hurt me. What, what career am I ending? You know, they told me, look, it stays on the Internet forever. You look really bad. Oh, that's really going to hurt me when I'm six feet under. So I did it for 90 odd days till I got COVID. And my idea of it was that eventually it would be a we are the world uh, like a, 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 from a generation or two ago when all the kids would join hands and they would do the ukuluka together and we all get let together longer and get together better. And I'd also, also raise money for charity, which finally I am starting October 1st. Uh, the whole thing was delayed by the fact that I did get COVID. Normally, I would think I, you know, I don't know how I got COVID, and I had not done any interviews with you, which could have been a COVID cause, because mm. uh, this thing can get transmitted in a lot of different ways. But COVID set me back. Uh, the, the virus has passed. I still have the after effects of it, and one of them is agreeing to do this interview. But I will go ahead with the <laughs> Ooka Charity Challenge. It will be like an ice bucket challenge that will start October 1st. There's your answer. And how, how do you get involved? 
what I'll start to do with that one is uh, I'm going to pick a different charity every month uh, or every two months because I'll do it for at least a year. And I will put out a, a, a challenge to two different people. So uh, I'll start with poker people. Then I'm going to go to more people. I'm going to go to like pseudo sports broadcast journalists. Oh, so uh, let me I, see who could have, yeah, I wonder who that could oh, be. I have six or seven of those listed and you are uh, actually in that group. So I'll put it out to the two. What they will do is that they will do the ukuluka. It takes 30 seconds and they will, they will do the ukuluka. They will contribute $50 to the charity and then they'll put it out to two other people. And when the chain gets broken, I'll start it again and put it out to two new people. So uh, that's the whole idea. And again, I'll be switching charities. Uh, they'll, they'll, they'll switch from, uh, there'll be some food bank charities. There'll be some rescue dog charities. There'll be some mental health charities. My first or second charity is going to be involving a University of North Carolina uh, academic foundation, which helps uh, young black journalists learn to become reporters and places them uh, in reporting positions and helps them uh, learn investigative journalism uh, skills. In all sincerity, Norman, it's great to hear that you are on the mend, not only physically, but emotionally as well, and um, that you're, you're doing so much good uh, with the initiative. It feels weird being sincere to you, though. It's just like it's kind of an out-of-body experience. Um, we're talking to Norman Chad, the couch slouch. We'll be back uh, with more of my conversation with Norman in our next segment. Welcome back to The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Cars, homes, boats, motorcycles, RVs, and more at Progressive.com. Welcome back to The Sporting Life. We're again joined by the one and only Norman Chad. And we have, it's called, is it a love-hate relationship? Is it a big brother, little brother, kind of mentor-mentee relationship? How would, you, how would you describe it to someone who has the misfortune of tuning in, you know, randomly expecting sports radio and hearing us instead? You know, you're close. I think you gave three or four different descriptions right now of that, of the possibility of what it is. And all of them are close without hitting it, hitting the nail on the head. Uh, and, you know, I can't hit the nail exactly on the head. Like, you would be the little brother I never wanted. I would be the mentor you never wanted. Uh, yep. So, you know, we're only a difference in age by about, I think, 10 or 11 years. It feels a lot longer than that, a lot larger than that. Uh, you're a lot smarter than me, but I try to, I try to bridge the gap with street smarts. Uh, you mm-hmm. really don't get out on the street unless someone is driving you somewhere. And I know your personal driver is taking some Not time true. off right now. So I really can't describe it correctly. I do have a very deep and abiding respect for you. Uh, it's almost like a, you know, like a, a bromance of some type, but it's a bromance in which we would never be under the same roof. Definitely absence makes the heart grow fonder in this situation. There's there That's been proven over the years, time and again. You know, football season for you is a special time of the year, as it is for so many Americans, but especially for you. Your observations after week one of this bizarre NFL season. Uh, yeah, I'll try to be serious as, as I can. First of all, actually years ago I used to write that football could be a studio sport. People ridiculed me. I know we, we love the pageantry of the fans, and especially in college football, how much you need it. But I think you would find that if we went this entire year with football being played in empty stadiums, that we'd also be watching. So I don't think you need the fans from that very narrow standpoint. My second point, and I hate to pick on ESPN, and let's just go back to my old days of being a sports TV critic. No, you've, you've always hated doing it. I know you do it with great reluctance. Uh, you know, last year, actually, on Twitter, which I hate, I went through a thing where ESPN decided that the little first down and 
10 and third and sixth right. graphic, it would switch places. When on TV, it, you, the team was going left to right, it'd be over in the left-hand corner, and when they were going right oh, to left, yeah. it'd be over in the right-hand. This was one of the like stupidest that? things I'd ever seen. You know, we just want to look well, up and see where it is. It seems to make sense is. to me. What, what are you going to say, sir? I said it seems to make sense to me, right? You know, yeah. visually, yeah. you're looking in one direction. No, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> okay. When you okay, and you okay, you don't understand watching TV because you just make TV. You don't understand. Well, we're at home watching TV. We have sort of a sixth sense, sort of another conscience, which just looks at the same spot again and again and again and again and again. Like you look at the same spot for the twenty-four second clock during an NBA game in the same place without even realizing you're doing it. You look at the same exact spot looking for a third and five, second and eight, without thinking, oh, they're going left to right or right to left. I will give ESPN credit. After a campaign that we, we, we protested around the country, we, we did rings around stadiums, we went to Bristol, and we took down the satellite dishes, they changed it before the end of the year. They made it to like every other network was oh, doing Oh, I remember that. You yeah, there were, there were complaints. Spot. And there was something about, wasn't there something also about the color of the fonts? That, that was a, you know, like I don't get into year? fonts. That is a more of a, I would say, more of a Silicon Valley slash Ivy League type of issue. So forget about the fonts you right now. So? We just got okay. that first and ten thing put into the same spot as it is on Fox and NBC and ABC and CBS and all the others. This year, all the sports TV networks have decided uh, increasingly that on the score graphic at the bottom of the screen or wherever it is, instead of just putting up the names of the teams, it's really like Titans, Texans, that we'll put up the logos. So, you know, actually, some of the logos are not clear. Some of them are very clear, but some of them are not exactly clear when you first look at it. What team is that? Now, why should we have to try to figure out what team it is, Jeremy, when we look at the score? Why shouldn't it just say Tennessee and Dallas or Titans and Cowboys? But no, on Monday Night Football last night on two different games, I had to look at a graphics, and, of course, eventually I could figure out, you know, because I am just once in the University of Maryland, what they were. You shouldn't have to try to figure them out. It should be as simple as, it's as equivalent of a headline, Jeremy. The headline should not you know, confuse I'll talk, you. I'll talk to the right people. Can you I'll talk, talk to the, the right people? people. I do not this, feel like this will be rectified. a month-long campaign this about will be this on Twitter. No, I don't want you to waste any energy. Um, I'll, I'll handle it. Consider it done. We're speaking with Norman Chad. He's getting himself very exercised yeah. over um, some of these things, which I appreciate. In terms of gambling, I'm curious is there a home field advantage when there are no home field fans? And how is that going to affect the way you consider um, lines this year, which is you know one of those things you do? I consider each game for up to 15 seconds in my head. So I don't go through all the other... And I, even Gut reaction. The Gut reaction is the most important... Yeah, most important thing is definitely your gut. Yeah, I go with gut which is considerable at this point, uh, even though COVID took 15 pounds off my waistline. I go with gut. I go with hunch. I go with instinct. I, I go with what I have seen and what I have known over the years. But what you're pointing out does make a difference because uh, we do know that, for instance, some places are more difficult to play. You can't even hear you know, the counts at the, at the line of scrimmage when they're so loud in domes like in New Orleans or Atlanta or in Seattle. So that is not as much of a factor. Travel is still a factor. When teams have to go you know, 2,500 miles, that's still a factor and all that. But when you're playing in an empty place or when you're playing in the bubble, obviously there's no home court uh, for the NBA, that's a whole different ballgame. So you don't think of home field. Home field 
field will be reduced in that way. I'm sure that the, the sports books and the gamblers will take that into consideration, and that will change the, the lines. I know at the very first game I was wrong. I took the Cowboys uh, against the Rams, and I realized that it, you know, it, it was sort of like a neutral field. They're going to be playing in an empty stadium, and so that didn't make much of a difference. And I thought the Cowboys were the better team, so I thought they'd win, and they did not. I was wrong on that game. But I did, it did run through my mind, Jeremy, that there's no home field advantage and that they're just playing at essentially a neutral site. The only thing that comes into play is, is, is travel, and I, I didn't think that was a big deal. I thought the Cowboys would win, and I was wrong. Norman, let me ask you. You're a wordsmith. You do have a way with words, a certain terseness of style. 2020, in a word, how would you describe it so far? People told, keep telling me when, you know, we can't wait till 2020 is over. Thank goodness it's only three more months or whatever. You know, 2021 could be worse. If 2021 is worse, it would be screwed squared. Like, I don't think we recover. I do think that we, we might recalibrate what we're looking at. I don't think it's going to happen. I think we'll all go back to normal eventually. If 2021 goes back close to what we knew before 2020, people will be watching sports in groves. But I was hoping that some of us would take a step back and say, hey, there's something else out there we should be taking a look at a little more a little more seriously. You know what gives me hope, Norman? What's that? This picture of you on this story. Norman Chad turns a bad beat into something upbeat. Big <laughs> smile. You know you know the picture? Yeah, I don't. You're I you know, there, really you got this. I've never seen you, you smile. You look sm- like it's, it looks like a belly laugh. Am I at a poker table? What have table? you done with Norman Chad? Yeah, you're at a poker table. You know, I've always found that poker it used to be blackjack, but more poker than blackjack because poker is much more social than blackjack. Uh, that when I'm at a poker table, everything outside can be shut out. And at a poker table, I'm a whole different personality. I'm actually can be in a good mood and I try to put everybody else in a good mood and poker just makes me smile sometimes. So if they found a picture of me smiling at a poker table, you know, it's a full moon situation during the course of a calendar day, <laughs> but when I'm at a poker table, I'm actually laughing and talking and smiling a lot. And, uh, you know, so that gives you hope that you saw me smiling. That makes me smile. Makes me happy. Norman, it's always a pleasure speaking to you. We appreciate uh, your contributions over the years to the show. And I am very uh, encouraged to hear that you are on the mend. Yeah, well, actually, the way you said that, it sounded like a lifetime achievement honor when you know you're throwing me over the, you know, overboard and you know, I won't be working anymore. <laughs> it so did. It sounded that. a little bit like that. I, yeah, I can read through the bull. So, yeah, it's been, it's been a pleasure being on your show biannually. I've I always appreciated it. Uh, I'll see if I can find... Uh, it's really more, let's be honest, it's really more semi-annual than yeah, But I do appreciate it because I can't get, you know, regular ESPN people do not call me, Jeremy, as you know this. The only person who calls me is, is a guy who has a Saturday show at like 4 o'clock in the morning Galapagos time. And so I do appreciate that you've reached out over the years to me, as you have. And, uh, you know, you've run through so many uh, producers and you've run through... You know, so many bookers who just, it's hard to work with you. But I appreciate that you keep coming back to me again and again, usually during Olympic years, which, as we know, are every two years now.